invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13. Can you turn that down a little bit? So, thank you. Romans 13. The Holy Spirit has reminded us that we have responsibility to engage in this process of total transformation. That um, because of the fact that Jesus has paid it all, that, that we owe our whole lives to Him. All to Him we owe. And so we saw that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2, that we need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And the Holy Spirit has also reminded us that part of that includes that we show love to one another, that we be good citizens, we submit to the government, that, that we be loving church members with this, as we saw last time, this unending obligation, oh, no debt to anyone except the, the debt to love one another. That's an ongoing debt that we have to one another to just constantly be loving. And and so part of the reason that we need to do that is what we're going to see today, and that is that the time is short. That the, the time to respond to Christ is now. So we need to see ourselves as strangers as we just sang make us strangers on this earth, dear Savior. Help us to see that we don't live for this life, but we live for the next life. And so our time here is limited. And if we rightly understand our our unending obligation to totally be transformed to God and to love one another, and if we understand that the time is short that we have to fight against sin, then that will serve as the foundation for which we will be willing to set aside the preferences that we have, which we're going to see in chapters 14 and 15, that there are all sorts of personal preferences that we may have, and we have to be willing to set those aside for the sake of the progress of the gospel, the progress of this church. And uh, so we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But, But today we want to see that the time is short. The nearness of Christ is is here. So let me read our text for us, verses 11 through 14. This is the Word of God. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity, and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The truth is that the time for us to fight against sin is running short. In this passage, we have a series of commands uh, that are coupled with a motivation. And the commands, you can see, it starts there in verse 11, do this. And I I think this includes all of the commands that we have seen in chapters 12 and 13 so far that could be summed up really with chapter 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We need to commit ourselves to this process of total transformation, this metamorphosis that the Spirit is doing within us. And then notice in verse 12, it says that we need to lay aside, the second part of the verse, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Verse 13, behave properly. Verse 14, put on the Lord, make no provision for the flesh. So, so in summary, we could say this whole passage is about 
about fighting against sin. We have a responsibility today to, res- to fight against sin. And so we'll, we're going to get to the commands shortly, but let me begin with the motivation, which is found in verses 11 and 12. Why should we spend our efforts, why should I, we spend our energy on fighting against sin? And the answer is found in verses 11 and 12, and it is that the time is short. That our time to fight against sin is running short. Notice in verse 11, knowing the time. That is, that, as James said, our life is but a vapor. It's here for a few seconds and it's gone. It vanishes away. The time is short. It's explained here in verses 11 and 12 in four ways. The hour for you to awaken from sleep. So that's the time. It's time to wake up. Secondly, at the end of verse 11, salvation is nearer. So that's telling us the time is short. Verse 12, the night is almost gone. And, and, um, and, and so we must recognize that the day is near, fourthly. So let's look at each of these. First, it's time to wake up. Verse, second part of verse 11. It's time to wake up. When do we use that phrase in just ordinary life? It's time to wake up. Well, when a person is sleeping, right? It's time to get up. Why? Well, you can't do any work when you're sleeping. The time for sleeping is over. What do you think this means for our spiritual lives? Remember, Paul's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to believers at the church in Rome. And he's saying to believers, it's time to wake up. So he's not saying you need to stop being an unbeliever and be a believer. So he's not saying, you know, you are asleep in your trespasses and sins, so to speak, and, and now you, you need to wake up from that. No, he's saying uh, you must wake up from your spiritual lethargy. You're, you're, you're acting as if this life doesn't really matter. How you live doesn't really matter. You know, the danger of being a Christian for a long time is that we can become complacent, can't we? That we can lose sight of what we are called to do. And so what Paul is telling us is that it's time to wake up and remember why we are here. That we cannot wallow in spiritual lethargy. I mean, what good would it be for a soldier if he were to be placed in a position of battle with his uh, fellow troops? What good would it be if he were constantly sleeping when it was time to do battle? Do you think it's any different when it comes to the spiritual battle that we are engaged in? Do you think that it would be okay for us to think lightly of God and His promises? Do you think it would be okay for us to take lightly the idea of eradicating sin and at the same time be effective in engaging the battle? Friends, it's time to wake up. The time for thinking lightly of the spiritual life as if it's just another thing. It's just another compartment of my life. You know, I have all these things I need to do. Spiritual is one of them. It's time to get over that and, and be serious that we are engaged in a real spiritual battle and sleep is deadly. Temporary sleep is dangerous. Permanent sleep is, is damning. That it will lead to an eternal condemnation. And so we need to wake up spiritually. The time is now. second way that Paul describes it here is that salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I'm going to turn this off here, Eric. And go to the pulpit. 
salvation is nearer than we, when we first believed. You see that at the end of verse 11. Now we don't like, we don't often think of our salvation as in that way, that our salvation is still future, right? But, but if you recognize how the scriptures describe our salvation, we need to understand that salvation is both complete and incomplete. That is, it's complete in the sense that Acts 16.31 promises that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That there is an instantaneous act where we have been taken out of darkness and into God's wonderful light when we are saved. It's, an, it's, a, it's a past action for those of us who are saved. It, it has happened. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. But there's also a sense in which we are currently being saved. That is, that, that we are being sanctified, we're being changed, we're being freed from the power of sin, aren't we? That sin no longer has its power that it once did over us. Where before we wanted to obey sin, we wanted to, to fall into sin. We wanted to jump in uh, head first. But now that sin doesn't have the same pull on us that it did before. Sure, it's not, it's not easy to to deny the temptations that we have. It's not easy to overcome temptation. However, we hate it when we do. We hate it when we give in to sin, that is. And so there is a sense in which our salvation is complete at our initial salvation. There's a sense in which our salvation is ongoing, sanctification. But then there's also this sense in which Paul's talking about that our salvation, our final salvation is the idea here, that it's nearer than when we first believed. That is, that it's incomplete. That we are not who we will once be. We, we have not been completely freed from the presence of sin, have we? The sin still has a, a grip on us. Sin still resides in us. It's in our hearts. And there's coming a day when our bodies and minds will be completely transformed. We will be glorified. And so here's the point in light of what he's saying in these four verses. The time is now. There's coming a day when our salvation will be final. So the time to fight against sin is not then. There's going to be no fight against sin then when we are finally saved. The time to fight against sin now. Thirdly, in verse 12, described in two ways, the night is almost gone and the day is near. We'll just combine it into one. That the day is near. On the Jewish calendar, their... Uh, their day began with night. Sounds kind of counterintuitive, but that's the way that it was. That at sundown, that was the beginning of a new calendar day. And so their day would begin with night and end with day. Ours is the, the opposite. We think of our day kind of beginning with day and ending with night, the end of the day. Uh, and, and so it, it makes sense that when, when Paul uses this illustration, for the Jewish mind, it, it makes a lot of sense that right now we're in the night and for them, that was the beginning. But there's coming a time when it will be day. It will be light. It will be over. And that day is talking about, obviously on the, on the end times calendar, that's talking about the fact that Christ will return. Christ is coming back and His reign will be on this earth. That, that the night where we live in this dark, the darkness of this current evil age is coming to an end, isn't it? And there's coming a time when Christ will reign in justice. The day's coming. So the time is short. The, the hour for us to waken from sleep is now. Our salvation is nearer than it was when we first believed. 
And the day is coming. The day of Christ is coming. And so we need to be fighting against sin now. We live in this present evil age, but we have been rescued out from it. And so now we live as pilgrims or strangers. And we live for another time, don't we? We live for another, uh, another era when our salvation will be complete. And so here's the motivation for us for why ought we to be serious about fighting against sin now. It is because the time is short that Christ is coming. And if we want to be found working when the Master returns, then what should we do? Well, then we must fight against sin now. And that's what the second part of the passage is about. The time is short. And so we have six exhortations here in the last part of this passage to obey. Six exhortations. Two commands in verse 12, two commands in verse 13, and two commands in verse 14. Now the first four in verses 12 and 13, they all have to do with with what we're supposed to do. And then verse 14 has to do with how we're supposed to do it. So we'll look at them kind of separately. First, what we're supposed to do. Verses 12 and 13. What we're supposed to do. There's four commands and then how we're supposed to do it in verse 14. So here's what we're supposed to do. Number one, we need to remove sin from our life. We need to remove sin from our life. Look at the second part of verse 12. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Here's a command for us to obey. We need to lay aside the deeds of darkness. Now, if we belonged to the darkness... If we belonged to this present evil age, then then we would be we would be people of the darkness. We would be okay to go ahead and obey the, the deeds of darkness. But but if we remember that as we just saw in verse twelve, that the day is coming and we belong to that day. We belong to the time when Christ will reign. If we believe that, then then that should shape how we live, shouldn't it? I mean, what kinds of things should be valuable to us? If we live in an era of darkness and the day is coming and we belong to that day, then what kind of things should shape our, our living? And I think it, is, it, it, sh- it should be that we remove sin from our life. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. For you are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be sober and alert. We need to stand up and fight against sin. The time is now. We don't belong to the darkness of this evil age. We belong to the light of the next age. And so we need to live that way. So take off the deeds of darkness. And then secondly, we need to fight against sin. See that at the end of verse um, 12. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. So we put off and then we put on the armor of light. Our responsibility is to to fight against the, the darkness that is pushing in on us. We need to be able to stand against that defeated foe, right? Satan and his minions are all defeated. It's only a matter of time where they're finally judged, but, but Christ has already won the victory. Right? Death is dead. Christ is one. And, and so they are defeated. They know that the battle is going to be over. They know that they've lost the war. 
but they still fight, don't they? They rage on against us, and we need to guard ourselves by putting off the deeds of darkness and putting on the armor of light. And we do this by putting on these weapons of warfare that we've been given to fight against the evil of this world. Right? Put on the 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 breastplate of salvation. Right? The 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 uh, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Ephesians six, ten through eighteen. We need we never we have a responsibility to put on this armor that God has prepared for us. We belong to the light, and so we should live like it. Thirdly, we should live morally. We should live morally. In verse thirteen, it is behave properly as in the day. In other words, if you're a citizen of the day, if you are a citizen of Christ's coming kingdom, you belong to that kingdom. Then. Don't wait until the kingdom to start living that way. Do it now. The time is short. Live in such a way that it would be consistent with a person who's who's living at that time. And specifically, I think it means to live morally. And the reason I think that is because the second part of the verse, verse 13, is the contrast of that. So we are to live morally, not immorally. And he's going to show several ways that we would live immorally or that, that we should not live immorally in verse 13. So he's saying, live morally, don't live immorally. And that's really the next one here at the end of verse 13. And he gives several uh, different ways. Um, in fact, three couplets, we could say. First, carousing and drunkenness. You could say, don't live recklessly. Carousing includes the things like wild parties and brawls and riots. Of course, we all know what drunkenness is. Don't live that way. That we don't live for a time to just kind of uh, eat up time or, or make this life all about our pleasures, our worldly pleasures. It's about God and His pleasure. Now, we can take pleasure in God's pleasure. That's a good thing. We don't want to be doing that drudgingly. Um, but, but the point is, is that we should not be taking part in worldly pleasures that are passing away. Don't live recklessly. And then secondly, don't live immorally. There... It says not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Any kind of intercourse that happens outside the bounds of marriage is off limits. Sex was made to be a good thing within the bounds of marriage, but outside the bounds of marriage it is against God. It is corrupt and evil and we need to we need to guard ourselves against that and not participate in it. And then thirdly, divisively, at the end of the verse it says, not in strife and jealousy. We need to guard ourselves against division or divisiveness. That is sowing discord, dissension, creating problems. That's the kind of these kinds of activities, these th- six things listed here in verse 13 are the kinds of activities that would describe a person who belongs to the night. It describes a person who belongs to the age of this evil world. We don't live like that and so we shouldn't live like that. That's the point. In the time to to guard ourselves against that, to remove ourselves from that evil, and to live righteously, live morally, live decently and unifyingly, is now. The time is now. So that's what we're supposed to do. Those are the commands. So we are supposed to to live as people of the light because the time is short. And and how are we supposed to do that? That's what we finish with here in verse 14. How are we supposed to live as people of the light? And the answer here is twofold. First, we 
live in close fellowship with Christ. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the first word in verse 14 is but. So instead of living like people of the night, instead what we are supposed to do is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now earlier he said that we need to put on the armor of light at the end of verse 12. Here he's saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that we do that is by living holy lives that are consistent with what Christ expects of us. In other words, he's not calling for mere moralism. You know, lots of people in this world are just simply moral, doing a lot of good things. But, but what Paul is calling for is something that is exclusive to Christians, and that is to have this close, personal fellowship with Christ, that all of our good actions are done in service to Christ, not in service to ourselves. That's what putting on Christ looks like. And that's how we do these previous commands of living in the light. We do it by having a close personal fellowship with Christ. This reminds us of, of what all these commands in chapters 12 and 13 are all about. It's about engaging in this process of transformation. And the way that we do that is by allowing the Spirit to work in us as we develop our relationship with Christ, our personal fellowship with Christ. And if we're going to do that, then it's going to require us to guard ourselves against sin. Notice the last command here. Guard ourselves against the cravings of the flesh. If we are going to have a personal relationship with Christ, then it means we need to put off the things that He hates. It means that, that we put away the cravings of the flesh, that we don't seek to satisfy those cravings. Instead of trying to fuel the flames of those passions that we have in our flesh, whether it be for money or for, for worldly pleasure or whatever the case, we don't allow those things to dominate us. Instead, we remove them, remove ourselves from the cravings of the flesh. We, we engage in the process of self-discipline where, as Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave. So that, so that he can have a better relationship with Christ. And so it's not going to be easy, but it, re, but it requires first this mindset that we are here, we live for another day to please Christ now, and so we're going to do it with our lives. Friends, the time is short, and we cannot go on in spiritual sleep. We must wake up and live for the day when the Lord returns. And the way that we do that is by living in close fellowship to Him. So let me... I'll just walk you through a few principles that we can consider. Number one, we need to recognize that a spiritual sleeper may have good intentions. Spiritual sleeper may have good intentions. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever, a difference between a complacent believer, we could say, and, and, a, and a mature believer, is that a believer has... It's not that a believer has good intentions and an unbeliever does not. So if we, we take this as a person who is permanently in spiritual sleep, they're constantly living for the night and not for the day. The difference between us as believers and them as unbelievers is not that you know, we have good intentions and they don't. The truth is, is they, that even those who are in spiritual sleep have good intentions. Let me prove this to you from everyday life. What is the difference between a lazy person and a productive person? Is it, is it that the lazy person doesn't have good ideas or good intentions and that the productive person does? 
No, I think the lazy person lays in bed, he lays in bed and he imagines of great things that he's going to accomplish and maybe even plans to do. But then he never follows through. Why? Because of excuses and justifications that he brings up in his mind, right? Like Proverbs says there's a lion in the streets. I can't go out there. I guess I got to stay inside all day and do nothing. Or, you know, I can get that done tomorrow. The truth is that that this is true across life, that the lazy person is is a good-intentioned procrastinator. That's a lazy person. He has good intentions, but he procrastinates. He comes up with excuses for why he's not going to do it. And I would suggest to you that the spiritual sleeper is also a good-intentioned procrastinator. He thinks, you know, I'm going to square up with God when I get up, when I get a little older, or you know, when I reach a certain status in life, when I get to college, or when I get married, or when I have kids, or when I'm a grandparent, or when I'm retired, that's when I'm really going to make things serious. I'm going to really get serious about having a personal, close fellowship with God. I'm really going to get serious with putting off that sin and, and not giving into the cravings of the flesh. That's when I'm going to be serious about it. You see, a spiritual sleeper is one who has good intentions. I'm going to do it. But he just keeps putting it off, right? I think I can prove it also that the, the fact is that even lazy people or spiritual sleepers have good intentions. I can prove it from the parable of the ten virgins. How many of the ten virgins wanted to have their lamps trimmed? How many wanted them to be trimmed? All ten of them, right? What was the difference between the ones who were rejected, who were thrown out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the ones who were accepted into the banquet? What was the difference? The five actually lit their lamps. They did it when the Master said, hey, I'm coming back. They spent their time listening to the Master and responding with obedience. You see, they both had good intentions, but the other thought, you know what? I still have more time. I can just wait a little bit longer. And when the Master finally came, guess what? It wasn't that they didn't want it. Oh, we don't really want to light our lamps. They did want. Please, help us. And the Master said, sorry, it's too late. You had your time. And I think we could also see this, the idea that lazy people are spiritual sleeping, people in spiritual sleep are well-intentioned people. We can see this from the story of the flood. When the flood came and the people realized that there was no hope apart from being on that ark, how many people do you think wanted to be rescued from the flood waters? I believe at some point they all wanted to be rescued unless they were just, you know, they, they instantly died with this huge crash or something. The point is, is that, that many of them, I think, had good intentions of being rescued at some point when they realized the, the, the fate that they were going to die. But the problem was that it was too late. See, the point is for us is not that we need to have good intentions. I think we all have good intentions of what we think we should do for Christ, what we want to do for Christ. The difference between a person who's spiritually sleeping and the person that's spiritually awake, the person who's spiritually awake actually follows through on those intentions. Now, not all of them. Obviously, we're, we are we fail. But we don't just sit around making up excuses for why we can't serve God today. Instead, we make efforts to do it. So, how do we do that? 
That's a tall order, isn't it? Because I think we recognize that to some degree we're all there. We're, we're all, we all have these pockets of spiritual lethargy where we're just kind of like, I'm not fully engaged here in the battle. I'm sitting on the sidelines. So how do we do that? How do we turn good intentions into spiritual productivity? And the answer is faith. The pathway to spiritual productivity is faith. The reason that a Christian is spiritually awake and not sleeping is because of faith. In other words, it all starts in what a person believes. If you don't recognize the great danger of being in perpetual spiritual sleep, if you don't recognize the great reality of the coming of the Lord, that that the night is here but the day is, is very near, if you don't see that the time is short, and if you don't see that God demands that you be working, then you will not be motivated to turn your good intentions while you're laying on your bed spiritually into spiritual productivity. In other words, you need to see the the reality that Christ is coming. The day is near and the time to work is now. The time to fight against sin is now. The difference between spiritual sleep and spiritual productivity is faith. It's believing that God exists, as Hebrews 11 says, and that His promises are true. That He's not just saying things when He promises to do things. That He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's faith. It's saying, not only do I have good intentions of what I should do, but but I also see that God is good and that He will reward this. So I'm going to follow through on it. I'm going to believe. It's believing that we are going to hold, be held account one day as we stand before God in judgment. That we're going to have to give an account of every single thing that we've done in this life. Whether good or bad. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Even as believers. And so, the exhortation to you today and to me is that the best day to serve Christ is now. It's today. The master is away and he left his servants in charge of the house to get some things done. And we had better be found working when he returns. You think God's going to accept the excuse? You know, I I didn't know exactly when you would return. Do you remember the parable? When when the master left, he didn't say when he would return. He says, make sure you're ready when I'm when I come back. He will not accept the excuse, you know, I didn't have as many resources as the next person. Remember the parable of the talents? They had all varying uh, uh, levels of talents or money. And God's not going to accept the excuse, well, you didn't have as much. Well, that's okay. Or He's not going to accept the excuse, you know, I was concerned about not losing what you gave me. And so I didn't risk it. Remember the man with the one talent? And buried it. And the master said, You failed, right? You didn't use it how I told you to use it. You need to take some risks for my sake so that you can actually become productive in, in what I have given to you. And so I think we need to ask ourselves how serious are we about serving Christ today? 
how much of our ministry here at this church has been about burying the resources in the ground so that we don't lose them. You know, like, I, I really, I know the Master is, he's kind of a hard man and he's kind of condemnatory and so I don't want to lose any of this thing so I just kind of bury it. Instead of, I'm going to seek to invest it. All the gifts that God has given to me, I'm going to use them for the sake of His glory. For the advancement of His work. I'm going to take risks for the sake of God. That's what investment is about. It's about taking risks. And that's what God expects us to do. Not just with our money, but also with with our resources, our abilities. We need to use them for the sake of God because otherwise we will have found ourselves to have failed like the man with the one talent. He he wanted to make sure he had at least that one talent when the master came back, but that wasn't enough because all those in whom God has done a work will respond with productivity. That is, they will produce fruit, right? They're not going to take a seed and just hide it in a little case and put it up on a shelf. They're going to put the seed in the earth and, and God's going to cause it to grow. Friends, God has given us that resource. That is, He's given us the ability to bear fruit. So we have a responsibility to live as children of the day, children of the light. We don't live for this time in this place, but the time to live for Christ is now. And we must be found working when the Master returns. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this reminder because it's so easy for us to to get lost within all of the, the details and the circumstances of life that, that we fail to remember that we don't live for this time in this place. We live for another time. We live for the time when our Savior returns. We live for the time when Christ will reign on this earth. And Lord, we want to be like the good servants who were working the whole time He was away. That doesn't mean we can't have any physical sleep. Lord, we, we have to have that. We, we are finite people. We can't live without sleep. But the point is, we, we should not be living in spiritual sleep. So Lord, we pray for Your help. We, we cannot do this on our own. We want to engage in the process, so we pray that You would work in us both the will and to do of Your good pleasure. Help us to be complicit with Your Holy Spirit instead of grieving Him. Give us the strength to obey, Lord. Give us the motivation to obey. The time is near. And show us how to obey by developing this close personal fellowship with our Savior, by knowing what He loves and following through on it, by talking to You regularly, asking for Your help. Lord, give us strength now, we pray in Jesus' name.